In today's podcast, we'll talk about 2021 drug trends and what we expect to see for this year. Welcome to another episode of the Poking Around Drug Trends Podcast. I am your host, Nick Place, and in this episode, we'll talk about 2021 drug trends. I plan on giving you a boots-on-the-ground perspective, not just from my end, but from experiences and information shared from law enforcement from the Midwest, from across the country. I follow groups on social media, and I see what others are, are finding out on the street. I think that's pretty valuable information, though I think it will be corroborated by some of the data that's out there. I'll talk about some statistics from the Wisconsin Crime Lab and also from the DEA. Every year the DEA puts out an analytical report on things that they see on their end. However, 2020 data has not been released yet as, as of mid-February 2021, though I expect it probably will be shortly. So we'll talk about information from the 2019 report that I think still applies to this year at this point. Expectations I have for 2021 is I think we're going to continue to see an increase in internet-based drug dealing. So drug users or drug dealers continue to buy drugs off the internet, things like synthetic opiates or designer benzodiazepines. And if you were keeping your fingers crossed that methamphetamine would go away in 2021, you will be sadly disappointed. That one I don't think will be going anywhere this year. And then marijuana, uh, we'll talk about some of the law changes coming up there. Marijuana legalization isn't a blue state, red state type issue. Places like Mississippi, the deep south, hardcore red state, so they vote Republican. Well, they voted for medicinal marijuana last year too. And we'll also talk about some changes coming up here, uh, at least legislation proposed anyway on the federal level that would decriminalize marijuana. We'll talk a little bit about decriminalizing harder drugs in Oregon, some legislation that they passed in 2020 through voter referendums, and also legalizing psilocybin or magic mushrooms for medicinal purposes there. And lastly, as far as drug trends, I want to discuss a drug called GHB or gamma hydroxybutyrate acid and why that should be on your radar in 2021. As always, I will put together on my website a copy of the show notes for this and other episodes, and please check that out at route961training.com. Now, let's get into the meat of the show here. Let's start out with what I think is going to continue to be the number one drug trend and threat to our communities, and that is the opiate crisis. That one is not going anywhere, and it has evolved over the last 20 years. Now, in the early 2000s, we saw prescription opiate abuse. Drugs like oxycodone were overprescribed. And during the course of maybe the first decade of our, of our century, we saw people get addicted to prescription drugs. And that evolved once states started to crack down. So in a state like Wisconsin, we saw the prescription drug monitoring program introduced around 2010 with a dip in supply, we saw the illicit drug market meet that demand. And let me explain how prescription drug monitoring programs work, is that in Wisconsin or other states that introduced prescription drug monitoring, it was meant to curb prescription drug abuse fraud. So cut down on things like doctor shopping. What that did though, too, is it helped to increase the illicit drug trade. So People still have, unfortunately, and I've heard this story so many times, unfortunately, uh, and it's not all, you know, like dirtbag type people. I mean, you had professional people that got addicted to prescription opiates, and once that supply was cut off, they needed something else to um, support that addiction. And unfortunately, the drug trafficking organizations met that demand by first introducing high, potent, and pure heroin. Um, then the trend went to fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Now you're starting to see these synthetic opiates 
start to meet that demand and those are now starting to be introduced into our areas as well. I want to share an article that was posted by WBAY, which is a news station out of Green Bay. The headline of the article states that the weather and COVID may be to blame for an increase in dangerous new illegal drug found in northeast Wisconsin. I think um, there's, I, I, I don't know, this is my take, but I, the headline here is a bit of a speculation. It seems like COVID gets blamed for everything. I don't think COVID is driving synthetic opiate use. I think this is an evolution of um, opiates that we've seen come on the market here in the illicit drug trade. However, the article states that um, new synthetic opiates made in labs and similar to fentanyl are raising new concerns for drug investigators. It's called purple heroin because of its purplish color, and the drug goes by a long list of names and almost as many of the substances inside of it. The article quotes a supervisor for the Brown County Sheriff's Office Drug Task Force who said that they're seeing a bunch of uh, different synthetic opiates other than just fentanyl. They talk about a new synthetic opiate called parafluorofentanyl or brophine, and they're made in labs in China or Mexico, often in powder or counterfeit pill form. The drugs themselves are not an entirely new mixture, and sometimes they don't show up in drugs tested at the crime lab. They contain other drugs, so other cutting agents. I'll talk a little bit about of a cutting agent trend that came out of Michigan in late 2020, but they talk about how these... Um, Illicit drugs in the market contain things like Tylenol, acetaminophen, or other antidepressants and other ingredients that can make for a dangerous and lethal concoction. Let's break this article down a little bit because I think it partly explains the increase in synthetic opioids here in, in uh, just not our state here in Wisconsin or the state that I live in, but in other parts of the country. Again, I think the headline here is a little, since I don't think, well, hold on. It's not a little sensationalized. It's sensationalized. It, I mean, everything has to do with freaking COVID. If you read the DEA report, again, it's in the show notes. Uh, the DEA report talks about uh, fentanyl and other, it's on page five and other Potent synthetic opioids, uh, primarily sourced in China and Mexico, continue to be the most lethal category of illicit substances misused in the U.S. It talks about fentanyl is sold as counterfeit prescription pills as, as traffickers, either wittingly or unwittingly. I think the latter, they're, they're doing it intentionally, are increasing selling fentanyl to users both alone and as an adulterant. Um, they will continue to experiment with other new synthetic opioids in an attempt to circumvent new regulations imposed by the United States and China. So what that means is the United States and China got wise to the change in the trend that went from heroin to fentanyl. So what countries like the United States and China have done is they have stepped up their enforcement and their apprehension of getting fentanyl off of the streets. So just like any good business model, the cartels and drug traffickers have changed their tactics. They have switched from fentanyl-based drugs to other types of synthetic opioids. So largely where you're seeing these new synthetic opioids hit the market are these drug labs in places like China and India Instead of using fentanyl, they're looking at older research publications and finding new, and I guess not new drugs, new drugs that have hit the market here, but drugs that were maybe researched 50 years ago and weren't, weren't put out on the market or made available for distribution to the public 50 years ago because of their either their abuse potential or how dangerous those drugs were. So that research remained dormant until these drug organizations and chemists found ways to make these drugs. And then now, instead of fentanyl, they put these new synthetic opioids out on the market. Just to be clear, I don't think fentanyl, I'm not saying fentanyl is going away completely. There's still going to be fentanyl and derivatives, things like car fentanyl still out on the market. Though it appears that the, um, based on lab reports and other data, that these other synthetic opioids are hitting the market and it appears that the drug trafficking organizations 
are changing their tactics somewhat as the United States and China catch on and, and increase their enforcement. In the DEA report, it mentions heroin. It talks about, again, this is from 2019, but I, I think the, the information in this bulletin remains the same. It talks about how the United States continues to see high levels of heroin-related overdose deaths. It talks about how fentanyl is being mixed in with heroin and um, that drug trafficking organizations in places like Mexico will continue to supply high purity and low cost heroin to the United States market. In conjunction with the DEA report I just mentioned, I also put a link into a memo that was released from the Wisconsin Department of Justice to law enforcement agencies across Wisconsin. Again, I don't think this is just Wisconsin unique. I think it's a trend that you're seeing across the country, but in their memo, um, it mentions two new psychotropic substances that they discovered through the course of their investigations. One, a synthetic opioid called isotonitazine, and the second, a designer benzodiazepine, fluolprazolam. And I'm hoping I have the pronunciation correct on both, but the lab report talks about both of those in an increasing amount of drug overdose deaths in the Milwaukee County area. And going back to that WBAY article, why that's relevant when it talked about cutting agents, um, it appears what's, what's going on here is they are adding, um, as far as they, I'm referencing criminal trafficking organizations, are not just putting the synthetic opioid in the drug, but they're also putting in other drugs with it to increase the effect for the user. And in this case, a designer benzodiazepine. Um, it also cautions law enforcement to use proper protection equipment, so PPE, because of the increased risk of overdose or accidental overdoses. It describes how, again, I'm probably going to kill the pronunciation here, but fluoroprazolam and how it's uh, similar to market or uh, regular prescription drugs or the ones that you're probably familiar with, like Alprazolam or Xanax. So it causes a similar effect to that. However, uh, again, drugs like fluoroprazolam were never tested on human subjects and when they were never FDA approved. So um, the effects of drugs like that, these, some of these designer benzos that are hitting the market, uh, we don't know the long-term effects and, and um, what, what they do to people, but it does mention in the report that um, you know, some of the symptoms you could see will be drowsiness, dizziness, impaired coordination, slurred speech, and loss of memory. So um, these were added to emergency scheduling under Wisconsin State Statute 961. It also talks about another one. I've seen this one on social media in uh, cop groups that talk about drug trends called Entonitazine. Um, that one is similar to isotonitazine. Um, uh, again, a very similar chemical structure to that. Um, and it also advises law enforcement that people suffer, uh, suffering from overdoses from those may require multiple doses of naloxone or Narcan to overcome an overdose. Also with that, I wrote about this on my blog on Route961training.com. Uh, Horse tranquilizer drug called xylazine uh, that the state of Michigan found was showing up in overdose deaths. It mentions, again, you can find this on my website, but it talks about how people that were suffering overdoses, the drug causes sedation and anesthesia, respiratory, depression, slow heart rate, etc. The report from Michigan said this drug, xylazine, is used as an animal takedown agent. So what that means for legitimate purposes, what they're using this drug for is to put into dart guns to take down larger animals out in the wild. Sounds like something that we should be putting in our bloodstream, right? So again, just to sum up what a cutting agent means, if you've never heard of that term, another street term out there is step on. So they step on the product or the drug. What that means, the drug dealer, instead of using, in this instance, for example, heroin or fentanyl and using a pure uh, heroin fentanyl concoction, they're using something else to replace that. And that something else in this case also causes drowsiness and the depression type effects 
or their narcotic analgesic type effects that the heroin or fentanyl also causes. So the drug dealer, in essence, is making more money by not using as much heroin or fentanyl and replacing it with something cheaper. That something cheaper could be, in this instance, a depressant or a drowsy type drug could be something like dephydramine or another you know, like in this, you know, we mentioned the synthetic benzodiazepines, just something to help the drug dealer increase his or her profit margin. Also, too, what we see as a cutting agent, uh, those of you who are drug recognition experts or who have, who are in law enforcement and get your lab re uh, report back from a driver that, or person you thought was under the influence of a drug other than alcohol, you'll see a drug like diphenhydramine show up in the lab report. Again, cutting agent, what, we, what I mean by that is the drug trafficking organization or the drug dealer, um, instead of using the illicit drug, they'll try to replace that illicit drug with something less expensive to help increase the profit margin. So a drug like dephydramine, which is um, in like allergy drugs like Benadryl to control an allergic reaction, they'll use dephydramine. And those of you familiar with dephydramine know, as a warning, you'll see this on the packaging, that it can cause drowsiness. And while the maybe the actual drugs are changing from um, things like heroin and fentanyl to some of these new synthetic opiates, the signs and impairment that people exhibit still remain the same. So whether it's oxycodone or it's heroin, fentanyl or isotonitazine, if somebody's under the influence of a narcotic analgesic, the recognition of that impairment still remains the same. So we still see constricted pupils on the nod, obviously drowsiness, um, the overdose effects remain the same. So in that regard, recognizing these new drugs still is the same, though behind the scenes you're seeing these drug trafficking organization change their tactics. Also, if it's mixed in with a designer benzodiazepine or drug like dephydramine, again, even though these are designer benzodiazepines, the impairment the person exhibits still remains the same. In the case of synthetic or designer benzodiazepines, we would expect to see the same type of impairment that we would see with any other type of central nervous system depressant drug. So again, those of you who are DRE or A-Ride or DITEP trained, um, you're going to see HGN. I would expect to see significant impairment on field sobriety tests, so things like walk and turn, one leg stand. Um, I would expect to see for like the modified Romberg balance test that their internal clock is going to be slow. And overall, I think it's just, you're gonna just see a nightmare with coordination and even disorientation. So they have a very poor perception of their surroundings and where they are. And often overlooked observation, maybe not by some, but one that I think deserves some attention is during the personal contact phase. Um, for those of you trained in SFST, is watery eyes. This drug combination, I mean, opiates by themselves are a diuretic, which means a drug that's going to dehydrate you. But when you mix in these two drug categories, an opiate plus a benzo, the watery eyes are really going to stand out. So based on my experience investigating these types of impairment cases, the, the people, their, their eyes sometimes are so watery that from a personal contact distance, three to four feet, their pupils appear normal. However, when I get a little bit closer to them and get a closer look at their pupil size, their pupil size is, is you know, about a millimeter and a half, two millimeters. So their eyes are so watery that it distorts and makes their pupils appear bigger than what they really are. Another drug that causes watery eyes, and unfortunately across the country, and especially in the Midwest and places like Wisconsin that you're seeing more of, is methamphetamine. Going off of the Wisconsin Crime Lab statistics, uh, their data that they put out, I don't have, they don't have data posted for 2020, but you see a trend here, and um, you, I'm sure you heard it in other places, you've heard me talk about it, is that whenever you have an opiate crisis, so if we look back at opiate crises through crises or however it's pronounced throughout time, 
um, you see a surge in stimulants following that. So this is what we're experiencing now is nothing unique, and we've seen it in the past. I would love to do a podcast just on um, – I, I love history. I would love to do a podcast just on drug history. And at some point, I'm going to do that. But let's just talk about methamphetamine. So um, the crime lab reported 2010, 6% of cases that they tested um, at the crime lab involved methamphetamine. Contrast that to – in 2010, 40% of the cases were for, for marijuana. Fast forward, 2015, 18% of the cases were for methamphetamine, 20% in 2018, and we see that jump continue. 2019, 23%, and it became the most tested drug at the crime lab uh, individually was methamphetamine. Again, the 2020 data is not out there. However, I would expect that trend to continue based on not just my observations, but those of you in law enforcement. Again, uh, I think that provides a boots on the ground perspective of what we're seeing. And it's backed up by the data that you see from the crime lab. And also to quote the DEA report, they're seeing an uptick in methamphetamine production. And they're also seeing that drug trafficking organizations are increasing the purity and potency and then keeping the price low. Uh, they also quote here their um, analysis of domestic methamphetamine purchases from January 2013 through December of 2017 indicates the price per gram of methamphetamine decreased 17.6% from $68 to $56 a gram. The DEA mentions in their, in their report that there's a little fluctuation in the purity. It doesn't go down by much. It goes from 94% and change to 93%. So again, not a big fluctuation, though. I think the, the takeaway here is the, the meth that's out there right now is not the biker meth that you saw from the 1960s. It's not even the meth that Daryl and his other brother Daryl cooked up in their shed from the 1990s and uh, early 2000s. And folks, just to be clear, I'm not saying that you're not going to have people making meth in their shed or people that are making meth through the shake and bake method, which is the insanely stupid way to make methamphetamine. In a nutshell, what shake and bake is, is the manufacturer, the hillbilly cook, takes the precursor chemicals for methamphetamine, shakes them in a bottle all together. It's incredibly dangerous burps the gases out in between that are very explosive and through a process then usually gets anywhere from, depends how well they do it, um, it could be anywhere from a gram to a few grams. It's insanely dangerous and you see a lot of these guys blow themselves up in the process of making meth through this method. And to give you an idea how insanely dangerous and stupid this is to make methamphetamine in a soda bottle, I took some clandestine lab training at the DEA two years ago, and the chemists at the DEA are not allowed to make the shake and bake method for demonstration purposes because of how dangerous and explosive it is. They tried it once, it went bad, and they will not allow um, a demonstration anymore because they're concerned for the safety of cops who take this clandestine lab class. They don't want them to get hurt. But again, going back to my point, the drug trafficking organizations are making a very pure form of methamphetamine made by real chemists, not some dudes in their shed. These organizations also are able to make it cheaply. So you combine a very potent form of an addictive drug at a very cheap price. And as a perspective on price, years, you know, five years ago, a gram of methamphetamine maybe cost $100. Up until COVID, COVID kind of changed things a little bit from what I'm told, but users and, and officers who work in drug units have told me that in certain instances, people were able to buy an eight ball of methamphetamine, which is three and a half grams for that $100 price. So things changed a little bit there. And I've heard, for whatever reason, COVID screwed things up with supply, but I've heard things are returning or have returned back to pre-COVID levels. And the price of methamphetamine dropping with purity being a big factor as well, but and there's some other variables, but I think that explains why we're seeing so many more cases go to the crime lab because cops are coming across methamphetamine more often on the street. I'm planning on doing an, a podcast just on methamphetamine and, and 
my next point here with uh, some reasons why people do math and expand on that. But just real quick here, um, some of the reasons why people have told me they do methamphetamine, the four big explanations uh, that I get from meth users are, the first one is that, that methamphetamine is, that the overdose potential is not as great as heroin. So what that means to them is they can get high without overdosing. I've even, I had a cop tell me once that he had a drug overdose and they found some meth and the, the coroner that uh, came to the scene told him that uh, it's impossible to overdose from meth. Um, well, the coroner with like six months on the job is wrong. Uh, you can overdose on methamphetamine. I get the dynamics of overdosing on an opiate like heroin and methamphetamine are different, but if you take enough methamphetamine, you will overdose, but it doesn't change the perception out there with a lot of drug users who, especially those drug users who are hardcore uh, or were hardcore opiate abusers and abused things like heroin for a long time, and they're very aware of the overdose potential. The perception for them is taking methamphetamine is a, a safer way to get high. Another reason I hear from meth users why they smoke methamphetamine is it's for medicinal purposes. Uh, I don't buy that argument. I'm sure there's, listen, there's some drugs like disoxin, which is prescription methamphetamine um, out there. I have run across people who are on disoxin for ADHD. However, drugs like that, other drugs like Adderall, which is a prescription amphetamine for ADHD, those are given in limited or certain doses under the supervision of a doctor. The meth user who smokes three to five times a day that is quite different than than that scenario. And that's not to say, too, that these other prescription drugs for ADHD can't be abused because they certainly are. But I'm just uh, what I'm getting at is there's a, a big difference between a prescription drug that is taken as directed versus street applications of, of somebody abusing methamphetamine. Another perspective on meth use that I get from users is they use meth for the stimulant properties of the drug. So like a normal person drinks caffeine, they use meth to stay awake. So quite a few people I've spoken to, they've told me they are working a couple different jobs at once. It's, they're constantly on the go and they're having a hard time keeping up. A coworker introduces them somehow to methamphetamine like, hey, buddy, why don't you try this? And then the person uh, starts out with a little bit and that progresses into a problem where over time, uh, they're, they're constantly using meth. And then in both the literal and figurative sense, they crash. So they're driving their car, they crash into something, or we get like a suspicious vehicle complaint and we find the person passed out in a parking lot somewhere. And here it's just their body cannot, you can only stay awake for so long before your body starts to, to crash. And then lastly, and I plan to really go into this one in my meth podcast in the near future, but the connection with methamphetamine and sex. Meth will stimulate the same parts of your brain as sexual activity. Meth releases a plethora of feel-good neurotransmitters. And we'll get into a book that I read, and it's the, the information in this book, once I read it, it was corroborated by drug users that I spoke to, mainly females who said that when they injected methamphetamine, they instantly had a sexual orgasm. Um, one woman told me that as soon as she puts meth into her veins, um, she starts to get an orgasm and it is intense. So you can see why for why this drug is so addictive to some people. Um, we think of sexual activity as some of the most pleasurable things that we'll experience. And, and you have a drug like meth that is often found with things like porn or sex toys, uh, prostitution. It's because the connection between sex and meth is very strong. So we're going to dive into that again in a future podcast and break that down. I think it's really relevant for or some of you who work with, let's say, adolescents. Um, we don't want to, be, to become victims of sex trafficking because of um, being introduced to methamphetamine. Again, those are four different reasons I get from meth users why they got into this drug. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. Um, I, I think you'd be pretty surprised on some of the answers and, and sometimes how candid they are with, with their meth use. Now, a drug out there that is being labeled as one that keeps people off of drugs like methamphetamine and heroin and some of those nasty synthetic opiates that are out there is marijuana. 
I think the trend with marijuana, we'll talk first about products and second about the politics behind marijuana. I don't want to make this podcast into a political podcast because if that is your thing, if you like politics, uh, there are plenty of other outlets out there for you. Though, in my opinion, I especially this year and going forward, marijuana and politics are going, are going to go hand in hand. Real quick, while we're in cannabis, I'm going to be coming out. The next podcast is going to be about Delta-8 THC and other psychotropic cannabinoids made from hemp, not marijuana, from hemp. Now they're being advertised by cannabis companies as a lighter version of marijuana, which is going to set up a debate um, probably some problems, especially if they're sold to people under the age of 21 or 18, adolescent people, um, a legal, perceived anyway, a legal uh, substitute for marijuana. And there's some gray area right now where some people say if it's made from hemp, if it's an isomer from hemp, it's legal. Others um, are saying that it's illegal. So we're going to see how this plays out and we'll talk about that in the next podcast coming up. Also, regarding marijuana products, concentrates will continue to grow. Um, I don't have stats on this. I, I would like to find some more, but with younger people, it appears that vaping continues to be popular. Vaping uh, both marijuana concentrates and then, again, the Delta-8 THC vapes coming into popularity here. We'll see those grow. Uh, another th stat I wish I had, I, I watched a presentation put on by NMS Labs from Pennsylvania on CBD and marijuana. And one thing that the presenter spoke about is the market for marijuana edibles. Again, I wish I had the stat I would share it with you, but I thought he said it was uh, the current market is somewhere in the area of $4 billion for marijuana edibles right now. And market research indicates that market is only going to grow. And he spoke about like the non-traditional marijuana users, so maybe people who haven't smoked or hardly smoked marijuana in their life, don't smoke it now or don't vape, they will experiment with marijuana in edible form because they don't want to smoke it, yet they want to get that buzz. And market, again, the, the, the presenter spoke about how this is going to take, this, this particular edible market is going to take off as marijuana becomes legal in more places and you have more people who are willing to experiment with it they're going to start out with edibles and how that's going to blow up so if you're looking for a stock tip and ways to make money um, maybe forget GameStop maybe look into marijuana edibles and again just the politics of marijuana it, I think that's a trend in my opinion I, at least I think it is I think it's going to um, define some things here in 2021 and beyond on the federal level, the big legislation out there right now that was passed by the House in December of 2020 was the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act with the MORE Act, spelled M-O-R-E. What that will do is reschedule marijuana. It will take it out of Schedule 1 category, decriminalize it on the federal level, and essentially let the states decide what they want to do with marijuana. So marijuana will no longer be a Schedule 1 drug as far as the federal government is concerned. It also does some things like throw money into startup marijuana businesses in minority and disadvantaged communities. It will also expunge marijuana convictions from people's records in certain certain circumstances so what that means it erases criminal convictions for certain marijuana offenses right now i want to before getting into it more it's uh it's hasn't gone before the senate yet um when when it does and we know more about it i think that would make an excellent podcast to to discuss that and maybe some other trends that we're seeing with marijuana laws across the country such as very conservative and red states like mississippi legalizing medical marijuana so it's uh at least the perception of depending how much you believe the polls are out out there but most if not all of the polling indicates that the majority of the public supports marijuana reform and then in a state like mine wisconsin we had governor evers propose legalizing marijuana again let's see how that one plays out and we can touch on it again in a, in a future podcast he's trying to put it into the budget process which is it's not going to work the the republican controlled assembly has said no go on that if you want to make marijuana legalization a separate issue that's fine but uh, we're not going to throw it into the budget Again, uh, a good topic for another time. So again, I'm, I don't want to make this a political podcast. 
because that's not what it is. But I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about how drug use and politics sometimes go together. And in this case, the legalization of marijuana and how it's becoming more mainstream and more socially acceptable, how that's going to attribute to more people trying marijuana. So, for example, the soccer moms of the world. Now, I'm not a big fan of soccer. I'm going to be honest. I'm not just not a fan, not a fan of the sport. I prefer hockey. Okay, so hockey's a cooler sport than soccer ever was or, and ever will be. But the hockey moms of the world who would have stayed away from marijuana use because it's illegal as it becomes legalized, things like marijuana edibles, you're Maybe your average hockey mom's going to give it a shot and see what it's all about. And I think that explains why you see some cannabis people, people that work in the cannabis industry and other market analysis, believe that they're going to see this exponential growth of marijuana edibles from the hockey moms out there who are going to give marijuana edibles a shot. And to feed off marijuana... Drugs like psilocybin mushrooms are taking the same playbook that marijuana used years ago, and for that matter, alcohol. Um, if you look up alcohol prohibition, you would find that Walgreens during Prohibition 100 years ago sold medicinal alcohol to people. So people that wanted alcohol got a prescription to get whiskey. So um, then marijuana copied the alcohol industry during prohibition and now we see people who want to legalize other psychedelic drugs or hallucinogenic substances things like psilocybin lsd and ecstasy are taking that same playbook and advocating for people who don't respond well to traditional psychological or psychiatric uh, therapy people who have things like ptsd or very bad cases of depression how Drugs like psilocybin mushrooms can treat these patients better by opening up neural pathways and getting them on the road to recovery better than traditional therapy. And this new trend is described as entheogenic therapy. And in the book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, they talk about how the use of psychedelics, things like psilocybin or magic mushrooms, help therapy in the following ways. One, it helps to lower inhibition and anxiety so the person opens up to talk about things that are bothering them more efficiently. It helps the person to give them the capacity to restructure a problem in a larger context, okay, so they're able to dive deeper into what's bothering them and open up some things that maybe they would not have been able to open up and explain with other types of therapy. Um, gives them a little bit of flexibility of ideation and fluency, so they're able to maybe work a little bit quicker than they normally would not have been able to, and a heightened capacity for visual imagery and fantasy. Of course, that's what gives um, hallucinogenic drugs. That's why they're called hallucinogenic drugs, because you hallucinate and uh, maybe open up some things and see or hear some things that you normally would not have been able to do so. Um and there's also th some things here, too, that they mentioned about an increased ability to concentrate. Um, now, there's a trend out there. If you hear the term microdosing, what microdosing means is the, the user, instead of taking a, let's use LSD, for example, and that's what the book uses, a recreational dose of LSD is 100 micrograms. And what a microgram is, it's a millionth of a gram. So we're talking a very, very, very small dose compared to other drugs. Um, instead of that recreational dose, a, a microdose is 10 micrograms. So a tenth of that recreational dose. And what that does is you don't get a full-on trip to outer space like you would normally get with a recreational dose of LSD, but that micro dose or that tenth of a dose is enough to open up some neural pathways, lower inhibition, increase some creativity, give the person some energy, and they're able to get tasks done that they normally would not be able to get done. So to give an example of microdosing on the recreational scale, one night I was watching Nat Geo and they had a documentary on psilocybin mushrooms and microdosing, and they used an example of someone in Silicon Valley and who works in the computer industry, which there, at least um, 
how they explained it, it's it's a very competitive work environment. So people are always trying to get a one up on other people um, for uh, employment purposes. Otherwise, you, you, you I mean, it's, those are very well paying jobs. And people are trying again to get this competitive advantage. And one way that they were doing that was by microdosing psilocybin mushrooms. And what it did, at least what their perceptions was, is the microdosing of psilocybin or magic mushrooms gave them um, more creativity, gave them more energy, and they were able to churn out a better work product and, and get better work out um, than they would have if they were sober or, or if they were on other drugs. So that's an example that we see on the recreational side of psilocybin and how it's being used in microdosing purposes. Now, most people are going to take psilocybin in a dried form, so they dry the mushrooms out. Not too many people are going to eat them raw. Most people that I spoke to um, say that, it, that the psilocybin mushrooms have a very bitter taste to them. I suppose you could eat them um, just normally with without mix it in with food, but most people tell me that they mix it in with food to hide the taste. There was a guy out there. I think he was from Denver. I'll find the article and I'll put it in the show notes. But what he did is he injected psilocybin mushrooms into his bloodstream and he got like a mold infection in his bloodstream. Um, so he is my nominee for the Darwin Award, which is the award given to people unofficially. It's not a real award, but an award given to people who try to kill themselves by doing dumb stuff. And he is my nominee because um, nobody, I don't think anybody has tried it, but always there's always a first. So he's my nominee for the Darwin Award. Um, growing psilocybin mushrooms appears to be a both a labor of love and patience. In the show notes, I'll put a link to a YouTube video I found that's a pretty good one. It, it breaks down how the, I think it's a guy, the grower, gets a or an oral syringe of the spore. He injects it into what looks to be a, a medium of sand and small pebbles, um, puts it in a Tupperware container, and over time, I think it was like three or four months, grows the psilocybin mushrooms, and I think he got close to a pound of, of psilocybin. And then uh, for dosing, most people I've spoken to, um, looking anywhere between like one to three or four psilocybin mushrooms, and in the case of microdosing, um, I haven't spoken to anybody yet on a microdosing amount, but if we're going to use you know, one, two, three, or four psilocybin mushrooms as a standard dose to hallucinate, maybe we're talking half of a psilocybin mushroom, okay, uh, just as a dose. Or the flip side of that, if you're really trying to go to outer space and hallucinate, you may be taking 10 to 15 psilocybin mushrooms or magic mushrooms to accomplish that again it depends on uh, what the person's trying to accomplish and how high they want to get and we'll wrap up the show uh, last but certainly not least the drug ghb or gamma hydroxybutyrate this is one when i became a dre in 2004 there was a lot of uh, publicity on on this one and like bell-bottom pants it uh, has come back around this one is a drug to keep on your radar First, it's used as a date rape drug. Second, um, a lot of people will use it just for its psychedelic properties. It's considered a central nervous system depressant, so similar in effect you'll think uh, to alcohol. So you will see a lot of things you see with alcohol, but without the odor. However, users have told me when they used GHB, what they like about it is that it is it has a very quick onset. And that is combined with a short duration. So the drug gets in quick, the body metabolizes it relatively quickly, and the drug gets out quick. Users have told me it, um, in a recreational dose, it gives a very euphoric feeling. The people I've seen under the influence of GHB are bouncing around and um, singing to music, like that kind of thing that you would expect in like a rave type environment. But then too, it gets out quick, and they have told me what's nice about GHB compared to a high dose of alcohol. With alcohol, if you take a high dose, you're hungover the next day. GHB does not have that hangover effect. So let's talk about GHB as a date rape drug. These are th some things to know. The facilitator that would dose his or her victim knows that GHB has that quick onset 
property so it gets you know the onset you're looking at 10 to 15 minutes usually and then it metabolizes quickly from the bloodstream and where that works to the facilitator's advantage is if the if the victim if he or she doesn't report the the crime right away to police it decreases the likelihood of that drug being found in the the victim's system not to say it's impossible but it does make it tougher to 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 investigate because of how well GHB metabolizes in the bloodstream. The facilitator also knows that this drug has catatonic properties. My experience investigating GHB, I can tell you that people under the influence of G will have a high degree of impairment that shows up on field sobriety testing and they are very uncoordinated. So that plays to the facilitator's advantage um, with higher doses of GHB used to facilitate a sexual assault. Also, in higher doses, um, even in recreational doses, there's amnesia. So the person or the victim in this case would forget what happened. Obviously, um, if you're trying to pull off a sexual assault, forgetting what happened works in your favor. So unfortunately, those are the dynamics with this drug that make it popular for date rape purposes and why I think it should be on your radar. And let's talk a little bit too about the chemical companion or the what could be the precursor to GHB, and that is GBL. Users I've spoken to prefer GBL because they can purchase it off of the internet. It's sold as an industrial cleaner. So they'll go on to, you don't even need to go on the dark web. You could search just regular websites, put in GBL cleaner. It's sold again as an industrial cleaner. And the users know that how it is sold and it is a legit there are chemicals out on the market that have gbl in it and it is used as a legit industrial cleaner so to clean heavy grease and that kind of thing um in, in an industrial setting so they know that there's a legit purpose for that and to circumvent enforcement they'll claim that that is what it's used for so if you see the cleaner and you see other indicia of drug use most common is going to be an oral syringe with the product so what I mean by an oral syringe is it's like a medicine dropper for children. If, you've, if you're a parent and you've given medicine, you use the syringe to, for lack of better terms, suck in the medicine. And then on the side of the syringe, there are markings indicating the milliliter dose of what you plan to administer. So what users have told me they have done is they use that syringe to measure out their dose the same way a parent would measure out their medicine that they would give to their child. Users have told me that the dosage amounts for GBL vary. So, um, and because this, and it's not sold as a regulated drug, it's not intended for human consumption. So they have to experiment with the dosage. And some users have told me that in some instances, even buying off the same chemical off the same website with one bottle of GBL, they had to take a three milliliter dose and that did the trick. The next bottle was not as potent, so they had to take a five milliliter dose. And then the next dose that they, that they ordered, that it was that the solution was much more potent and they only needed a one milliliter dose. So because again, it's not a regulated product, it's not used for human consumption. So hardcore users know that they may have to experiment with the dosage. One user told me how this person experiments is they always start a new bottle of GBL at a three milliliter dose and then adjust the dosing based on the effects off that initial three milliliter dose. And then again, for date rate purposes, the solution's going to have to be stronger. Um, so if it's a three milliliter standard dose, they'll probably up it to five or six, again, depending on um, some experimenting factors as well. Another advantage to both uh, the, especially GHB, it's, it's an odorless, colorless solution or powder. So the victim does not taste or smell the solution, which is also advantageous for trying to get away with the sexual assault. To wrap up this section on GHB, I'll put some additional info in the show notes that you can follow up on and read more about GHB and GBL. Um, I think, again, it's important for law enforcement to know about this as we, especially even the frontline officers investigate, or at least get the investigation going on sexual assaults. Also, too, know this. I've had GHB and GBL users openly brag to me how they've gotten away with impaired driving or other crimes because the officer did not pick up on their impairment. 
So the officer, I'm, you know, I'm not there, but I'm presuming that they're looking for alcohol and they're not seeing it. This drug should look just like alcohol um, impairment that you're used to seeing, but without the odor of intoxicants. From my experiences investigating people under the influence of G or GHB is the amount of impairment they exhibited on the HGN test. So all six clues, um, I've seen an almost early onset of nystagmus with this drug combined with a vertical nystagmus. So if you are in law enforcement and you haven't been to A-Ride, I highly recommend that you go to it so that you don't have that GHB user using you as an example of a chump and how they got away with their impaired driving and how they got off the hook because you didn't pick up on it. A-Ride is a free class. It is a 16-hour class, and it will tell you how to find people under the influence of a drug other than alcohol. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening today. Um, we had a lot of stuff to cover here with drug trends for this year. I, I do appreciate you listening. I would love it. I would love it if you gave me some feedback. So please email me at pokingaroundpodcast. That's P-O-K-I-N-G, aroundpodcast at gmail.com. Again, it's a change from the P-O-K-E-N. We're not using that anymore, though I will get the email. But please use the P-O-K-I-N-G, pokingaroundpodcast at gmail.com. Please send me your suggestions and comments or things that you would like me to talk about on this podcast. I would like to thank everybody for listening. I know I went a little long, uh, longer than I what I would normally like to cover. Please email me or for topics you would like discussed or if you want me to go into a little bit more detail on some of these topics or have questions, please let me know. Also, please rate us at your favorite podcast hosting service. My favorite is the Apple Podcast app. It only takes a short amount of time, a few seconds. Please give us a five-star rating that helps us reach new listeners. So once again, thank you for listening. I hope to have you back. And once again, my name is Nick Place, and thank you for listening to the Poking Around Drug Trends podcast.